Well, tonight we begin our final major section of the book of Amos, who was God's shepherd prophet. Now, just to recap the major plot points so far, Amos was a citizen of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. But he was not a trained priest, nor a scribe. He was a farmer by trade, a farmer who worked with sheep and figs. But in his ordinary labor, God called him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so off Amos goes to his former countrymen, now long divided by a civil war that happened some time earlier. And Amos tours Israel, and it especially tours two major cities, Bethel, where a new temple had been built featuring a golden cow idol, and Samaria, where King Jeroboam II lived. Now what Amos found in these two cities, both dedicated to religion and politics, was rampant idolatry and injustice. Now Israel was not only worshiping false gods, it was also oppressing its own citizens, especially the poor and needy. So Amos preaches a series of sermons designed to shock Israel out of its spiritual and social apathy. And he really targets the most prominent citizens, the kings and judges, the merchants and generals, all of Israel's most rich and powerful people. Because he watched in disgust as cruel housewives whipped their servants for more wine and grotesque husbands forced themselves on slave girls. And last time we saw the height of decadence, a funeral banquet where not a soul mourned the dead or contemplated their own mortality. Instead, they were just using it as an excuse to get drunk, brag about themselves and their bank accounts, and sleep around. In every way, Israel was corrupted and proud of it. The religious took pride in their rituals. The military took pride in their strength. The nobles took pride in their wealth. But none of them took pride in the God who saved them. And sermon after sermon went unheeded by these people. Warning after warning went ignored. And God, God finally had enough of it. And so... God reveals five harrowing visions of judgment to Amos. They are so swift and so terrible that Amos starts to weep as he experiences them. He cries out to God for mercy for wayward Israel, and tonight we're going to cover those first three visions. So let's look together at the first vision of locust in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Now suddenly it would seem... God shows Amos a glimpse of a horrifying future. A swarm of locusts descends at precisely the worst time, just after the king's hay had been cut for his horses and for the military's cavalry, and just before the crops started to bloom. So in other words, everyone from rich to poor is about to feel the terrible sting of hunger and famine. And after the locusts are finished devouring everything in this vision, Amos cries out in terror, Lord God, please, please forgive them. But notice this, Israel hasn't repented of anything. In fact, quite the opposite. Amos's prayer then is for pure grace, that God might forgive a very undeserving people. But still, there are people in the land for whom Amos has been advocating this whole time. The widows, the orphans, the poor. He's especially concerned about them. How will they survive if this happens, he wonders. 
They're just small and fragile. Maybe Jeroboam and his armies arguably could survive a famine on what they already have stored up, but the poor absolutely cannot. So God responds immediately in verse 3, but in a surprising way to us. He relents immediately, saying, it will not happen. God stops his just punishment before it even begins. And he doesn't even require anything from Israel, from the people that have been called to repentance time and time again. And so as Old Testament commentator Gary Smith points out, it is an act of pure grace on a people who have been rebelling against God for centuries. I think this goes to show us that God's greatest desire is to be good and merciful even to the worst of offenders. So that's the first vision. But let's look also now at the second vision in Amos chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Now, God sends another vision to Amos. And again, God shows Amos a glance at a a possible future, at a terrifying future. He shows him a fire so powerful that it destroys not only the land, but the sea as well. It's quite literally the closest thing I could imagine, at least, to a vision of hell on earth. Now, I think it's worth considering just how seriously God takes Israel's sin of idolatry and injustice. Worshiping false gods and abusing one another is deserving of this kind of a response. God explicitly says that that's why he's been judging them. But again, Amos cries out, asking God to stop. But notice this time, he doesn't ask for forgiveness for them. He just begs God not to give everyone what they deserve. And just as quickly, God says... It won't happen. Again, the Lord's heart is to love. It's to restore. It's to forgive and even resurrect people, even when they're as undeserving as they can be. So don't lose this thread in Scripture. Abraham intercedes for a terrible people. Moses offers his own life to God if he'll spare Israel. See, we see this theme developing in the Old Testament that sinners need an intercessor and an advocate. But we'll come back to that idea later. But first, let's look at now this third vision, or third and final vision that we'll be looking at this evening. So in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, we move on to this third vision of God holding a plumb line, or what we might call today a level. And he's holding it up to Israel. Now, a plumb line is is not really commonly used anymore, as I understand it. Maybe some contractors do, but if you don't remember, it's a, it's a weighted object with a point at the very end, and it hangs down from a long piece of string, and the, the center of gravity is, is meant to find its balance, and then ultimately to measure if an object is truly vertical or not with that weighted string. So in this vision, God is standing on top of a large city wall. Maybe we might presume it's Bethel. And he has set this plumb line, this level against it. And he asks if Amos can see what it is that he can see or what it is that he's doing. And what is God doing? Well, he's quite literally seeing if Israel measures up, if their society is balanced and level 
And he finds that not only their walls are crooked, but their hearts are crooked as well. You know, I I think this metaphor really still carries over very easily into our modern world. Israel does not measure up, is the idea here. They don't measure up spiritually, not morally, not socially, not in any way. And so God says in verses 8 through 9, I'm not going to spare them anymore. All of their high towers, their palaces, their citadels, their temples, and even the house of the mighty king Jeroboam, all of this will be cut down with a sword. So it seems that God's patience really has finally been exhausted. These people must be dealt with. Now, I think it is important to recall how often, though, God has, in Amos alone, begged Israel just to repent and be spared. We can't overlook that, folks. God has begged Israel to come to their senses and to return to him. This idea that we have of God, especially in the Old Testament, as just this mean-spirited, hair-triggered, and short-tempered deity is just not a biblical vision of God. Even some of the most vile and debaucherous and homicidal humans who've ever lived, even for them, God prefers mercy over wrath. So here Amos has preached these three visions. These first two kind of mirror each other in a way through their, their language and, and, and how Amos prays that God might deliver the people and how God does re- respond by allowing them to be delivered. He relents from his disaster. And this third vision about the plumb line will match a fourth vision we'll get to next week. But first, we actually start to get a response from the people of Israel. People start to speak back, specifically one very important person. So let's look at chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Now, this is our final section for tonight. And sadly, we'll see that after all of these visions, after all of this time, after all these collective sermons, Israel continues to rebel against God and ignore his commands altogether. So in verses 10 through 17, we finally see how Israel responds to all of Amos's sermons, specifically these visions that we've just talked about. And do you think it's positive? No, not in the slightest. In fact, we read in verse 10 that Amaziah, who was a priest in Bethel, has been listening to everything Amos is saying, and he despises it all. And so he writes to the king, King Jeroboam II, telling him that Amos is conspiring against him and against Israel. Now, notice what he says, Amos said in verse 11, that Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will go into exile. Now, does he report anything else? Does he say anything about the sins of Israel? Does he say anything about Amos coming as an oracle of God? No, not a word. In fact, it's kind of funny, I think. Amaziah, in some ways, reminds me of one of his contemporaries, Jonah, who we studied last year. Jonah was a uh, a yes-man to King Jeroboam, and he also was commissioned by God to go and speak a word of not only judgment, but even of mercy to uh, Israel's opponents, the Assyrians. 
And he also leaves out major chunks of the message of God's justice and his mercy when he preaches his sermon. And yet the message still gets through. Even God's grace for the the evil and barbarian people of Assyria, who are this great empire that abuse and use up all the people of the ancient world, even even they can experience God's mercy. But Amaziah, just like Jonah, loves to leave out the true message of God. Instead, what he does is he casts Amos as strictly a political and economic threat, which he was, but not for the reasons that Amaziah thinks. I think he's fearful that Amos will stir up a rebellion or a revolution from the war people. And perhaps he's he's fearful that he'll cause some kind of a mass sedition and treason on the part of Israel. But either way, Amaziah is more interested in politics than he is in worship. He's more interested in power than he's interested in holiness and compassion. So in verse 12, Amaziah essentially tells Amos to go back where he came from, to flee back to the land of Judah. There's definitely, I think, some condescension happening here. He's calling him a seer, for instance. That's like calling someone a con artist that's prophesying for money. So he threatens him to leave and never to come back and especially never, ever teach in Bethel again. Because, as Amaziah says, it's the king's sanctuary and royal temple. Now, wait a second. I thought this temple was supposedly dedicated to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. See, Amaziah exposes himself here. He doesn't think that Amos speaks God's words, but he doesn't think that this is God's house either. He thinks it's Jeroboam's house and temple. But is that true? Is Amos making money off the superstition of others, rather? Hardly. That's what people like Amaziah are, are doing. That's what Amaziah is, is after. But in verse 14, Amos confirms he's not a professional prophet, nor does he come from prophets. He's like a blue-collar shepherd who takes care of fig trees on the side. He's like Paul. He does secular work to feed himself so he can preach the message of the Lord. But nevertheless, the Lord calls somebody like Amos to leave his flock behind and instead go prophesy to God's wayward flock up in Israel. And yet again, facing persecution, torment, and death, Amos preaches the truth. He proclaims God's glory and holiness and demands Israel's obedience and their charity to one another. It doesn't matter that corrupt kings and high priests don't want to listen. God calls for his truth to be spoken and for people to respond with repentance. See, there are plenty of people in our churches today that have the spirit of Amaziah. They want their ears tickled. They want to take pride in their culture. They want to take pride in their heritage and community and reputation or whatever. But they refuse to be humbled before God. So that when they hear sin and repentance preach, what they want to do is shoot God's messenger. See, here's the problem, folks. They aren't fighting the preacher. 
They're not fighting the prophet. The problem with Israel and with Amaziah and with Jeroboam, with all of them, is that they're fighting God Almighty and his everlasting and abiding word. In verse 16, Amos says, Now hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. But folks, who do you think will get the last word in Israel? Will it be Jeremiah? Will it be Amaziah? Will it even be Amos? Or will will it be the Lord? That's what Amos says here. Now hear the word of the Lord. Not hear the word of Amos. And this reminds me of another prophet, Isaiah, who wrote, All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. Humanity withers. People fade. But the word of our God remains forever. And so Amos concludes here in verse 17. He says, here's what the word of the Lord is and what he says. And we hear this terrible word of judgment. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Every single one of these declarations you can find in Deuteronomy 28, where God promises Israel, if they live unfaithful and unjust lives, which they are living out here now in Israel, they will bear the curse of this broken covenant, and that's what God is announcing over them. Now, when we look around at our world today and we see corruption in every human institution, we see violence in every human endeavor, from capital buildings, cathedral churches, corporate marketplaces, and even worst of all, we find that in our own heart. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do when all we see around us as lies and manipulation, lust and slander, and hatred in the hearts of, of, again, not only everyone around us, but inside of our own hearts as well. What do we do? Our only hope is not in the economy. It's not in the government. It's not in the military, the culture, or even in religiosity. Our only hope, dear Christian, is that someone from outside of us, might intervene and intercede for us to a holy and just God. See, we read tonight that Amos prayed for Israel to be spared. Not unlike how David and Moses and Abraham prayed for others before him. But the problem just kept coming back. So what is our final hope then? What's our our hope? Our only hope is in Jesus, who is both the just judge and the justifier of the ungodly. See, Jesus is the creator who takes all of our sin, all the sin of his creation, and he deals with it on his cross. Jesus, who is Lord over all and lover of our very souls. Folks, the exceedingly good news for us is that Jesus 
even when he hung on the cross, interceded to the Father, that his killers, his murderers, those that betrayed him the worst, even they might be forgiven. Until his dying breath, he was loving and forgiving. And he now lives and intercedes for us. He is our great high priest who understands our weakness and our failure. And yet he understands this without having any sin in and of himself, only the sin he took from us. So may we pray to this Jesus, who even now, even now, after all we've done, after all the missteps we've taken, after all the mistakes we've made, after all the sins and shames of our lives, even now beckons us to come to find rest for our souls and eternal life for our bodies. And with the ancient church before us, we pray and cry out, Kyrie eleison, Christi eleison, Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. And Christian, I want to assure you that in Jesus, he will. Let's pray. Lord Christ, have mercy on us sinners. Relent from our deserved destruction and revive us by your mercy and grace so that we may respond in worship and obedience. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.